Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 25 in our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth, and we are really coming towards the end of things. This is going to be, uh, I think, I am uh, still planning for this to be the penultimate discussion uh, that we're going to have. I think we'll be able to finish it next time today. I'm hoping to get through everything up before the... um, uh, everything up before the uh, the the last one, the rivers and beacon hills of Gondor, and uh, then we'll discover the river. The, we'll discuss the rivers and beacon hills next time, which is the thing I've been really looking forward to uh, in this uh, <clears throat> whole book so far. Um, uh, all right, so uh, before we get started, my announcement for today. Um, is I wanted to uh, I wanted to show you guys I want to make sure everybody had seen space uh, space is I, I've talked about it you know I've referred to it many times um, what I'm showing you on screen here is Blackberry Blackberry named after the clever rabbit that you will remember from Watership Down uh, the one who can uh, solve any problem and come up with any trick uh, we named the uh, <clears throat> Registration system, which behind the scenes is really complicated, um, uh, BlackBerry, uh, after the rabbit for this reason. But anyway, it's it's also the companion to Goldberry, uh, which is the name of our uh, of our MA program registration system, uh, custom registration system that was made. Beautiful system designed by the good folks at Eldarion.com. Uh, strongly recommend them for web applications and and stuff. They do awesome awesome work. Um, anyway, so. Um, so here we are. So, uh, BlackBerry is what is being used right now for space registrations. It will always be used for space registrations. Um, but, uh, there may be some other things added to BlackBerry soon. Who knows? But, um, definitely space registrations. So when you log into BlackBerry, first you have to create a login, uh, and, uh, and you, you log in and it gives you your home screen here, which enables you to enroll in confirmed modules, vote for upcoming candidate modules. You can look at, uh, you know, the different candidates, the different modules that are coming up in the different months. Um, and you can buy your tokens here and everything. It's, um, uh, it's really cool. It's, you know, keeps track of how many you have. I bought a bunch of tokens a while back, uh, cause my, uh, son really wanted to take some space modules, so I've been uh, I've been giving my tokens to my children uh, so they could take space modules. I've got three left here, so I can keep an eye on this, so I know when uh, my sons worked through the first set of modules, and and I can uh, I can gift him some more. But um, you can see, so for instance, if we look at the upcoming modules for May, um, we can see the entire list of modules that were put forward for May. Some of them were confirmed, a couple of them were not, and we're going to you know, come back and try them again. They just you know, didn't work out with people this, uh, this month, so we'll try them again next month um, but, or, or the month after. So you can see all your options. We've got our advanced reading modules in Old English and Old Norse. We've got uh, biological concepts in fantasy and science fiction taught by a biology professor who's uh, uh, teaching uh, about like how biology is used and invoked, <laughs> used and abused in fantasy and science fiction. Uh, it should be really, really cool. Creative writing. We've got the ones with the numbers after them are the ones which are uh, our serial modules, so especially for languages, right? If you're learning a language over the course of a, a number of months, right? So we have like a sort of a, you know a cohort that's going through there. So we've got our, our continuing cohort in Egyptian hieroglyphics. We're starting a new uh, a new cohort in Klingon. Um, that's uh, going to be 
really, really fun. I, I love, I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, today is a good day to learn, uh, uh, which is a, a fun uh, uh, play, uh, of course, on the traditional Klingon phrase. Um, and it's really fun. If you peek ahead, um, you know, you, so you, you, you'll learn the basics of, of reading and speaking Klingon uh, in, uh, in this module. And if you look ahead, we're, um, if I go back to, let's see, Oh yeah, go up to the June modules. You'll see next month we're planning Klingon Klingon two. I was just uh, I was just looking more at this last night. There it is, our Klingon two. Um, you know, after you've learned basic Klingon, then you get to learn uh, Klingon uh, social <laughs> patterns, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, how do you um, do you know the correct response when a Klingon tells you a secret, right? Um, uh, anyway, it's um, it's really fun. Idioms, dialects, forms of address, familial terms, ritualized speech. Uh, really, really fun stuff. Anyway, there's, uh, there's also all this stuff you can go through. Lots of languages we do. It, you know, there's, we, there's lots of languages and literature, which is, of course, our specialty. Lots of fantasy modules and science fiction modules. Um, and uh, we're going to be expanding. You, know, our, you can take a module on Tolkien and magic by Serena Higgins, those of you who were with us at... Uh, uh, Sunshine Moot got a little bit of a preview in uh, uh, Dr. Higgins talking about Tolkien and magic. Um, you can kind of dig into it more deeply there uh, in this module. If you've ever wanted to learn Tolkien's invented languages, um, this module is an awesome start for this. Um, um, Elise and James are basically going to be going through the Lord of the Rings and looking at the elvish words that are used in the Lord of the Rings as a as a way into, like, how do we, like, how do you begin to learn? How do you begin to figure out? You know, uh, uh, you know, what kind of patterns can you begin to see? And so, working from the familiar words and names you know, um, beginning to kind of put together and understand how the Elvish languages work as a really natural um, way to come to to, to get what um, you know how the, how those uh, how those languages function. Um, anyway, it's it's really fun. Um, you know, <clears throat> space is just such a perfect way to learn. Uh, to learn, I mean, it's a it's a great kind of community to learn stuff in. Um, it's been especially useful for language learning. We've had lots of people just rave about that because, you know, learning languages, learning languages is challenging. You know, and a lot of people set out to learn a language independently. You get a book, right? You watch a video series. You try Duolingo, something like that, and um, you can make some progress, right? You know, you can do it, but it's it's hard. It's hard to stick with it. It's hard to. Uh, you know, move forward without support and, and uh, you know, without a, a community to help you. Um, our space modules are all of them. They're small groups, usually single digits of students and a dedicated professor um, working with you. So you've got, uh, you know, accountability and support and encouragement and community uh, as you go through and learn this stuff together. And especially those um, uh, those modules <clears throat> that are serial modules, right? So you're, you're starting, like we're, uh, this is, what, where am I, in May again. Um, in May, you can see we're doing Latin in a year five, right? So we had um, a cohort of folks who started learning Latin back in January and have been learning together all year long uh, so far, that cohort. Um, and that's, um, that's been really fun. So anyway, <clears throat> uh, this is, um, 
I just definitely wanted to make sure folks knew about this. The last thing I wanted to draw your attention to, if I go back to my little BlackBerry homepage here, um, is this new promotion that we're doing in space this month, um, which we call the, the Hitchhiker Special. Uh, and that's if you refer a friend. So for those of our students who are already in space, if you refer a friend, uh, you can send them a link, right? Say a click here to get the referral link. And there's there's my little referral link there. Um, so um, you... Um, you send the link to your friends and they click through that link and sign up. If they purchase at least one token of their own, then they get a free token. They get a second token for free or an extra token for free and you get one for referring them. Um, so, uh, you may say, well, hang on, but I don't know anybody who's in, I'm interested in doing this and getting a free token. And, you know, one token equals one free module, basically one free month worth of, uh, of learning. Um, so uh, you can get a whole month free, right, when you sign up right now. And much, but you're like, I don't know anybody to refer me. Email me. You know me. So send me an email. I'm, I'm, I'm in this, right? I've bought tokens, so I'm totally officially uh, in the space program now. Send me an email. I'll be happy to send you a referral link. Then I'll get a bonus, too. I'll, I'll, I'll get an extra one, either that my kids can use or more likely I'll give it away. Uh, and, hey, like win-win situation, right? So um, anyway, uh, you can definitely... You can definitely uh, ask me if you can't, if you don't know anybody else to ask. So um, uh, if you want to know how to get into all this, right, um, space, if we go down, uh, if you go to this, the space webpage, this is signumuniversity.org slash space. Uh, you scroll down past the instructions and here's the BlackBerry thing. You can sign it, sign up for BlackBerry, right? There's our, uh, our, our link there uh, for BlackBerry. So that's how you get in. All right. So let us move forward again in our penultimate passage of text here this evening. So we finished talking about uh, Galadriel and Celeborn uh, last time. Oh, cool. Yeah, Nancy says she's doing her first space module right now, and it's super fun. Yeah. Nancy, are you doing hieroglyphics? Is that, is that, is, is, am I right in remembering that? Or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not 100% on top of it, but I see some of these things coming through. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, um, cool. All right, so let us jump back in. We got a, a, our last kind of miscellaneous, miscellaneous thing. So, all right, here we go. Oh, you're taking the history of anime, Nancy. That's cool. That's cool. Awesome. Um, oh, neat. Steven's doing history of anime and uh, Lewis's Ransom trilogy right now. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Serena's doing a module on the Ransom trilogy. Um, we did, of course, out of the Silent Planet in Mythgard Academy a little while back, but uh, she's doing the whole trilogy, so that's really cool. Neat. Neat. All right. Um, Sylvan Elves. <clears throat> uh, now, talk about a group that had has not had that much written about them in the Legendarium, right? I mean, they kind of... Uh, the Sylvan Elves get a bit of short shrift in, um, uh, in the Legendarium as a whole, right? It's very kind of Noldor-centric, generally. Um, you know, as just this afternoon when I was talking about this, I'd never really thought about it this way. But the way I the way I, it was one of those things where, like, as soon as I said it, I was like, "Yeah, I never really thought of that before." But that that's uh, that that kind of makes sense. Um, and that's uh, you know, when we think about it, essentially, all of the lore that we have, the legendarium, right, as we have it, the fictional frame of that is it all it all comes through Elrond's library, essentially, right? You know, I mean, he's the uh, the sort of transmitter 
of most, you know, including the Hobbit lore, right? He's where the Hobbits get most, he's the source, right? For most of the Hobbit stuff, you know, Bilbo's stuff and Sam's stuff and everything else. Um, so uh, it makes sense, right? That uh, things are rather Noldor centric. But anyway, um, let's look at some of the things that we learn about Sylvan elves and their language. The legends speak of a sojourn of many years and long debates before the Vanyar and Noldor uh, before the Vanyar and Noldor, after long exploration, began the crossing by the pass under the Red Mountain. So he's referring, of course, to the sojourn on the east side of the Misty Mountains, right? And now you'll remember we read some of this, right? In um, in back in the back in the mathematical section of the book when we were talking about the great journey, right? The great, uh, uh, you know, the 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 the, the trip from Quivianen. To the uh, to the to the uh, to the sea, the Great March. Um, you'll remember that they stopped for a long time and remained <clears throat> in the general Lothlorien area, right, uh, living there for quite some time until finally the Vanyar and Noldor were convinced to move on. So that's kind of what he's referring to here. Um, okay, they were followed by some two thirds of the Teleri, a third mainly belonging to the folk of Olway, <clears throat> had become during the delay well-contented and remained behind. There was no contact between these Sylvan elves and the Grey elves, the Sindar, who in the event also remained in Middle-earth and never crossed the Great Sea until the Second Age and the ruin of Beleriand. So, uh, this is, of course, is just, you know, a little recap for those who are familiar with the Silmarillion and the three groups essentially that the uh, uh that the Teleri, uh the last and largest of the kindred of the elves split up into right you've got the whole group of the Teleri that sets out you've got they get to the misty mountains um a third of them don't ever cross right and decide to stay on that side and the other two thirds do eventually go across and enter into Beleriand um and then another portion of them stay there and then finally the last remnant go over the sea, right? So those become the Teleri who live by uh, by the shore, um, and then you've got the you know the Sindar are the ones who stay in Beleriand, and the Sylvan Elves are the ones that stay in um, Mirkwood. So you've got the Sylvan Elves <clears throat> and the Grey Elves. Uh, one thing that we get here, which is interesting, is the proportion, right? That one third of the Teleri, the Sylvan Elves, make up one third of the original crowd of Teleri uh, that were there, which you'll remember is also what we saw with the Avari as well, right? One third, um, one third of the Avari remain, uh, one third of the elves remain behind and become the Avari. And then one third of the elves from the march are remaining, or of the Teleri on the march rather, are remaining behind to become the Sylvan elves. Um, So that's an interesting little sort of piece of parallelism there that we're getting. Um, Okay, in uh, right, in Manish terms, that was a time as long as a lo- as long maybe as all the years that now lie between us and the War of the Ring. In Manish terms, that was a time as long maybe as all the years that now lie between us and the War of the Ring. I find that sentence very very striking. Um, and the reason I find it's that sentence, it's like breaks the fourth wall, 
in a sense, if you see what I mean. Um, normally, we're always looking and talking within the um, the context of the legendarium itself, right? Within the context of, um, you know, sort of Middle-earth time. Um, and that there is a measurable amount of time between the War of the Ring and the modern day is not like a completely unheard of idea, right? He's talked about that before, and we've, we've uh, you know, we've read some things, uh, you know, about the amount of time there. Um, but as a comparison, I had um, uh, never really... I've never seen that kind of just kind of float up in the middle of it, right? Um, like the way in which we ourselves are being addressed, that line now between us, you know, when I was just reading through this at first, I assumed the us meant the hobbits or something. Maybe the hobbits, maybe the men of Gondor, right? You know, wasn't wasn't 100% sure who the us was going to be, but the last people I thought the us was going to be was like us, us, like us modern readers, right? Um and, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, man, sorry. Did I forget to change the title again? I apologize. Wednesdays, you know, uh, Wednesdays are a challenge in that way. Um, my apologies for that. Anyway, so, um, uh, Gene's got it on Twitch, but not on YouTube or everywhere else. Whatever. It's fine. We'll fix it. <laughs> we'll fix it. Anyway, um, but you see what I mean? Like the, the us that's involved um, is, uh, it's not even unusual to see an us from within the framework, right? But that us very rarely, um, very rarely includes us ourselves. Anyway, I just, I find that that sentence really kind of blows my mind when I, when I come to it. Any tongues of men, however close akin, would in such a time have diverged beyond recognition. It was not so with the Elvish languages. They changed indeed, in Middle-earth at any rate, in much the same ways as do our languages, but much more slowly. For as Elvish sight and hearing were limited in range as ours are, and yet were keener and of greater range, so were their memories of things seen and heard. In the first age, after the end of the great journey, in a thousand years, the unheeded change in the speech of the elves that remained on the hither shores, that is, in Middle-earth, was no more than in two generations of men. This is a really interesting discussion, and you can see Tolkien um, kind of at various points in his life shifting about in how he conceives of this working. And by this, I mean the change in Elvish languages over time. On the one hand, the change in Elvish languages over time is the fundamental premise upon which Middle-earth is built, right? You know, he says in his prologue uh, to the second edition of The Fellowship of the Ring um, that the story was primarily linguistic in inspiration. I know that I myself never really understood what he meant by that, but of course many of the things that we've been studying together in the Mythgard Academy have really helped me understand that much better, in particularly when we were reading, I think, what is the, Thlamas, is that in The Lost Road? I think it's in The Lost Road. Maybe it's in The Shaping of Middle-earth. And then actually I think it's in The Shaping of Middle-earth, um, volume four. Anyway, um, you can really see how he actually began 
with a linguistic exercise, right? Um, he starts by making up his own language. Languages, right? Um, well, he starts by making up his own language, and then he, not being content with making up a language and being a philologist and being fascinated at how languages change over time, he then began to create a theoretical history for his language, right? So he makes up a language, but not just a static language. He then throws all of these scenarios, right? And does all of these fun what-if games with his imaginary language, right? What if the language that started over here, you know, the people who speak that language leave that place, but some of them stay, but most of them leave and go away and then um, when they're reunited, like, how will their languages be different now, right, um, from having been in different places? Um, and then, of course, you see him beginning to throw out all of these other scenarios, right? And what if this, um, you know, what if these, like, you know, divide up in this other way and they live in proximity to these other L, to these other subgroup of this, but not so much these, and then these come in later, and so then they border this other group, and, you know, like, so all of this stuff. The, um, this is why all of those things, the migrations of the elves, the different peoples of the elves, the geography of Middle-earth, is why it's all so complicated, right? I mean, if you've ever been sort of wondering as you're reading the... Um, you know, the, as you're reading the Silmarillion and you're trying to to track, as so many people do, and so this is where so many people fail in reading the Silmarillion, right? Going through and you're reading about the migration of the elves, and and you're reading about like the 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 Sylvan elves and the green elves and the uh, and the 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 gray elves and and all, and all the different names for each of them, and it gets so confusing, right? And so so many people are like, why does he do this? Like, well, this seems needlessly complicated. Right. But this is why Um, it wasn't it was needfully complicated. Right. All he's doing is now trying to give a narrative form uh, or rather he's trying to give a narrative context to these linguistic games, essentially, uh, that he was um, that he was playing before. Oh, thank you, uh, Mary. The Flamas is in the is is in the Lost Road. Yeah, I couldn't remember which one it was in. Um, Anyway, so I. it's really fun to see how that came about. But anyway, as I was saying, there are some potential problems with the change of Elvish languages over time, right? Um, because the migration, you know, the, the way that you get from, you know, like Latin to Spanish, for instance, right? Um, that can happen over the course of a few hundred years, right? Um, but it's a gradual thing that tends to happen over generations, right? Um, so how has that situation changed when you have immortal speakers, right? The same speakers who are, you know, like the people who, like when originally the people groups separate and then they come back together again after thousands of years, what if it's still the same folks, right? Um, will their languages have changed very much? Right, so this Tolkien found himself confronted with, um, you know, he found he kind of found himself caught in a cleft stick of his own cutting. Right, if uh, it's the same folks and their memories are really good, why should their languages have changed at all? Right, I mean, I think we've all known people who, 
have not been living, you know, like a, somebody who grew up in, in Brooklyn and still speaks with their Brooklyn accent, even though they've been living in Chicago for 25 years, right? I mean, like, we've all kind of known people like that or, um, you know, people who still have, uh, you know, their London accent after moving to America, you know, 30 years later or something like that. Um, mightn't some of the elves be, at least some of the elves, be like that, right? Still speaking the same dialect, the same you know, the same language, the same speech patterns that they had when they grew up by Quivianen, you know, and um, no matter what, where they've been in the meantime, you know, they're still the same folks, right? So, um, so as I say, Tolkien has had different kind of answers to this problem at various points. There was one point where he actually suggested that the languages of the elves changed more readily and more rapidly even than human languages can be seen to do because the elves themselves are so creative, right? It's not that they forget or just kind of, you know, their accent themselves just kind of shifts unconsciously over time, but rather they themselves are continuously, um, continuously shaping the language consciously, right? Making changes. Um, you know, it's, it's, again, it's part of their own creative impulse, right? And so, Whereas, you know, a human might be sort of retentive of their old accent, right? Um, or, um, you know, exactly as you're suggesting there, um, uh, Beclothis, uh, you know, have your accent come out when you're talking with family members, right? Uh, like your mom from New Jersey uh, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, we see that kind of thing with humans. W- with elves, it wouldn't be just about I'm... Um, I'm gonna code switch right in a particular uh, uh, in a in a particular context, but rather, you know, I'm uh, I consider my own language, you know, my artistic canvas upon which to work, right? And that the the difference between the shift in Elvish languages over time and the shift in human languages over time is that Elvish language shifts are happening consciously, like as a result of creative effort rather than of just unconscious shift. Um, anyway, so there, as I said, there are a whole bunch of different moments where Tolkien has kind of addressed this and kind of thought his way through these, this uh, situation. And another thing that we have seen many times in the nature of Middle-earth, which definitely comes into play in... Um, which definitely comes into play in the whole elf language question, is... The uh, previous writings as received text trend, right, that we've seen in Tolkien a lot, how he tends to not make revisions and changes to his early work and then just, you know, erase what he had before. But as he's niggling and fiddling with his language, uh, with, with his languages, deciding that, you know, this word is a better way, or this sound is a better way to convey this word than this other word. Um, instead of just saying, oh yeah, that's my uh, that's my older version of Quenya. It's not as good as my current one, so I'm just going to throw that out. Instead, he takes the whole history of his own development, his own creative development uh, of the languages and imposes that upon history, right? Um, if there's a story that he wrote 20 years ago where he uses a particular version of a name or a particular version of a word, 
right? And then he later on is doing it differently. Um, sometimes he'll, if he's just, if he's revising, sometimes he'll go back and change it, right? Um, but sometimes he won't, right? He'll just incorporate that change into the historical frame of the story itself. Anyway, so these are, you know, sort of some of the games that Tolkien is playing with his languages here. Where we can see him being here, right, is in the uh, the trend where he's saying, okay, yeah, the Elvish languages, they change naturally, but slowly, right? Slowly compared to human equivalents, right? So the uh, thousand years... Um, in the thousand years, right, in, in, in the first age after the end of the Great Journey, in a thousand years, the unheeded change in the speech of the elves. Notice that specification, the unheeded change. There might be heeded changes, right, creative changes, um, uh, things that they changed on purpose. Um, but there also might be some unheeded changes. There, there are, he says, some unheeded changes. And in a thousand years, it changes about as much as it would change in two generations of men. What does this um, what does this start to start to sound like? If you um, uh, do you see what I mean? Hang on. Sorry. Um, uh, is are you getting any flashbacks from part one from the math section? Sorry, I don't know what's up with me in the sneezing here this evening. But, um, yeah, uh, think of those proportions, right? In a thousand years, the unheeded change in the speech of the elves that remained on the hither shores, that is in Middle-earth, was no more than in two generations of men, right? Yeah, exactly, Mr. Dennis. I smell math in the background here, too, right? This sounds very much like the mortal equivalence thing he kept doing with their ages, Right. Um, Two generations of men, a thousand years of elvish speech development in Middle Earth. It sounds very much like those those mortal equivalents of ages. Right. Um, In other words, he seems to be trying to subject them to uh, the. uh, this idea of language change to that same kind of pattern, right? And that strikes me as very likely, right? Very, very typical. Uh, very typical of Tolkien. Um, okay, let's keep going. Though the comparison of the Sylvan dialects with their own speech greatly interested the lore masters, especially those of Noldoran origin, little is now known of the Sylvan Elvish. The Sylvan Elves had invented no forms of writing, and those who learned this art form, uh, and and those who learned this art from the Sindar, wrote in Sindarin as well as they could. By the end of the Third Age, the Sylvan tongues had probably ceased to be spoken in the two regions that had importance at the time of the War of the Ring, Lorien and the realm of Thranduil in northern Mirkwood. All that survived of them in the records was a few words and several names of persons and places. That's all that survives of the Sylvan language. So there are a couple things here, right? First of all, they'd ceased even to speak it. The influence of the Noldor and the Sindar in the 
Western part of Middle Earth in the Third Age had become so profound that they don't even really speak their language, their own language anymore. And they never wrote it down. And indeed, it almost sounds like they were resistant to writing it down, right? Um, they had no scripts at all. They never wrote. That itself is not strange um, among the elves. Writing was never a primary focus, at least not until, you know, everybody started to die. That is, everybody started to get killed by Morgoth and, and you know, things started being lost. Um, but, um, uh, so it's not strange that the Sylvan Elves would not have a script or care about writing. The interesting element to me is that the Sindar did have a form of writing, right? Um, and when the Sylvan Elves learned it, they did not choose, or rather they chose not to adapt that usage, that script, that language, um, in order to preserve their own language, right? Um, they just wrote in Cinderin as well as they could. Um, yeah. Um, Cecilia, <clears throat> yeah, Cecilia says, in some of this, is some of this Tolkien retconning Haldir's comment, we seldom use any tongue but our own? Um, yes. Cecilia, what I have a hard time understanding here, though, is this seems to be a contradiction. Somebody, could somebody look this up for me and make sure I'm getting the quote right? Doesn't Legolas say that their their speech is sundered. The speech of the elves of Lothlorien is sundered from the speech of them in the Sylvan realm in the north. Um, he speaks. He he can talk to them, right? Um, <clears throat> Haldir and and his brothers, right? Um, but. I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering correctly, Legolas speaks of their languages being, um, being sundered. And I don't see how to reconcile that with what Tolkien is saying here. If the Sylvan tongues had ceased to be spoken in Lorien and in Mirkwood, that means they're all speaking Sindarin, right? In which case, how would it be sundered? Maybe by an accent, Tomas? That seems possible. Um, yeah. Perhaps. You know, is there something kind of um, dialectical, right? Um, but uh, anyway, my, the point that I'm making here is that it seems to me that some of the stuff that he's doing here concerning not only the Sylvan Elf, the Sylvan Elf language, the Sylvan language, but the Sylvan Elves themselves seems to bear a different relationship with the text of the Lord of the Rings than some of the other stuff he's been doing. Um, most everywhere else we have seen him accepting the Lord of the Rings as an established 
text, right? Um, and dealing with that. But here he seems to be... Thank you. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Chad, uh, for quoting the text here. Um, the, full, the full text of the passage. Welcome. The elves then said in the t- common tongue, speaking slowly, We seldom use any tongue but our own, for we dwell now in the heart of the forest and do not willingly have dealings with any other folk. Even our own kindred in the north are sundered from us. Okay, I was remembering the word sunder, but he's not referring to their speech. Okay. They are sunder from But there are some of us who still go abroad for the gathering of news and the watching of our enemies, and they speak the languages of other lands. Okay. Okay, great. Great. Um, awesome. Alyssa is also pointing out um, b- before that, uh, like Alyssa's initial exchange. Um, there was a sound of soft laughter over their heads, and then another clear voice spoke in an elven tongue. An elven tongue. Right? Frodo could understand little of what was said, for the speech that the sylvan folk east of the mountains used among themselves was unlike that of the West. Legolas looked up and answered in the same language. Yeah, I had always been under the impression they were speaking the sylvan language um, among themselves, right? And Legolas was speaking in that same language, too, as he surely would have known the language of the sylvan elves, uh, you know, who were his people. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. So it doesn't say, as I was recalling, I was recalling, well, so I remembered the use of the word sunder, but he says the people are sundered from us, not that their language is sundered from us. Okay, so he doesn't say that explicitly. But doesn't it seem to imply that they're speaking? What he does say um, is is that the, uh, the sylvan elves language is different from that of the elves of the West. Which is presumably Sindarin. Right? Unless... Has Frodo just learned Quenya? And doesn't know Sindarin? Seems unlikely, doesn't it? Because, I mean, Tolkien also says in places that nobody really speaks Quenya anymore to each other. Um, That it had become a a language of lore. Uh, And Sindarin is the language that they speak. When we get... Sindarin is the language that Thingol demanded that people speak, Jenartanis. Chad, you're right. I'd never thought about that. Um, Chad is pointing out that Frodo didn't seem to know what Kirith Ungol meant, right? He didn't, he, uh, he failed to translate Kirith Ungol. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. But Alyssa, that's what I was just about to say before Chad makes his excellent Kirith Ungol point, um, that Frodo does understand the rangers of Athelion, um, who are speaking in a form of Sindarin. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that he, I don't know, for all of these reasons, that is the fact that I had never really been able to imagine that Frodo did not understand, um, did not understand Sindarin. Uh, 
and the reference to the language of the elves of Mirkwood and Lorien being sundered from the language. Sorry, the word sundered is not being applied to languages, uh, but being uh, 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 unlike that of the West, right? But I guess he seems to be... um, I guess he seems to be backtracking on that a little bit here, doesn't he? Changing his mind about the use of Sylvan languages. It wouldn't be the most you know, a, a very exaggerated, uh, um, a very exaggerated change that he's making. But anyway, interesting. Um, yeah, I agree, Stephen. Place names can be challenging. Um, you could be forgiven for hearing the name like Kirathungal and not knowing that you're meant to take it quite literally, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, let's keep going. Those names that are elvish, at least in form, in the northeast, may naturally be supposed to have been originally devised in the sylvan tongue of Thranduil's realm, which had extended into the woods surrounding the Lonely Mountain, before the coming of the dwarves in exile from Moria, and the invasion of the dragons from the far north. The elvish folk of this realm had migrated from the south, being kin and neighbors of the elves of Lorien, but they had dwelt east of Anduin. Their movement had at first been slow, and they had for a long time remained in contact with their kin west of the river. Their unrest did not begin until the Third Age. They had been little concerned with the wars of the Second Age, but in that age they had grown to a numerous people, and their king, Orifer, led a great host to join Gilgalad in the Last Alliance. But he was slain, and many many of his following in the first assault upon Mordor. Afterwards they lived in peace, until a thousand years of the Third Age had passed. Then, as they said, a shadow fell upon Greenwood the Great, and they retreated before it as it spread ever northward, until at last Thranduil established his realm in the northeast of the forest, and delved there a fortress and great halls underground. Um, I'm go back over those migrations at the beginning again. Okay, let's see. Um, the elvish folk of this realm had migrated from the south being the kin and neighbors of the elves of Lorien. But they had dwelt east of Anduin. Okay, so they were dwelling originally to the east of Anduin, like near where Dol Guldur would become, presumably, right? Um, and they were they stayed in contact. So their kin west of the river, the elves of Lorien, um, and they didn't really run into troubles until Dol Guldur became... Got taken over, um, and when the wars with Sauron and the Second Age began, okay, that makes that that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Jade Toller's uh, uh, uh What what was it? Uh, Amon Blanc, uh, isn't that the name? Um, before, you know, Sauron moves in, and there goes the neighborhood. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, that's probably what he's referring to here, I think. And then they're like slowly, you know, 
migrating up through into the woods. Um, they end up kind of fetching up into the northeast as the darkness is spreading from Dol Guldur, right? So they um, remember Legolas's comment in the council, we don't go that way, right, about southern Mirkwood near Dol Guldur. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, Oh, very cool. Alyssa, that's wonderful. So uh, Alyssa is saying that uh, Andy Higgins and she addressed the Kirithungal thing years ago. Um, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings era Noldoran, um, what later became, what is that which is now called Sindarin, um, Kirithungal translates to Shadow Pass, not Spider Pass. Um, vaguely ominous, but not a specific warning. So, there you go. The Shadow Pass. There you go. Um, cool. Thanks, Alyssa. That's awesome. Um, great. So good to have so many smart people here. Let's keep going. Orifer was of Cinderin origin, and no doubt his son was following the example of King Thingol long before in Doriath, though his halls were not to be compared with Menegoth. That is the Elven King's Halls, of course, in northern Mirkwood. He had not the arts, nor the wealth, nor the aid of the dwarves. And compared with the elves of Doriath, his sylvan folk were rude and rustic. He had come among them with only a handful of Sindar, and they were soon merged with the sylvan elves, adopting their language and taking names of sylvan form and style. This they did deliberately, for they and other similar adventurers, forgotten in the legends or only briefly named, came from Doriath after its ruin, and had no desire to leave Middle-earth, nor to be merged with the other Sindar of Beleriand, dominated by the Noldoran exiles, for whom the folk of Doriath had no great love. They wished indeed to become sylvan folk, and to return, as they said, to the simple life, natural to the elves, before the invitation of the Valar had disturbed it. So the sylvan elves, especially the sylvan elves under Orifer, right, are going back to the land, right, in specific well, not rebellion against the Valar, but trying to recover the innocence pre-invitation, right? Thus already, they're like a retroactive Avari, right? Thus already in the Second Age, Orifer had withdrawn northward beyond the confluence of the Gladden and Anduin to be free from the power and encroachments of the dwarves of Moria, and still more, after the fall of Eregion, from the domination of Celeborn and Galadriel. So when uh, uh, when Eregion falls, Celeborn and Galadriel move over to the east side of the mountain. And as far as Orifer is concerned, there goes the neighborhood now, right? Um, they don't want to be drawn into the orbit of this Noldoran elf queen, right? So he uh, moves up towards northern... He starts moving up towards northern Mirkwood then. That's really interesting. They had passed through Moria, they, Gladro and Celeborn, of course, had passed through Moria with a considerable following of Noldoran exiles and dwelt for many years in Lorien. Thither they returned twice before the last alliance and the end of the Second Age. And in the Third Age, when the shadow of Sauron's recovery arose, they dwelt there again for a long time. 
In her wisdom, Galadriel foresaw that Lorien would be a stronghold and point of power to prevent the Shadow from crossing the Anduin in the war that must inevitably come before it was again defeated, if that were possible, but that it needed a rule of greater wisdom and strength than the Sylvan folk possessed. She saw the strategic importance, in other words, of Lorien, right? If Lorien were to be strongly held, then it could basically help to hem the forces of Sauron in the south and prevent them crossing over um, and troubling the northern part of the world. Remember, it, this makes me think of Boromir's comments in uh, the Council of Elrond, right? And the response to him, right? There, you know, yes, Gondor has been a stalwart tower, right? Um, Gondor might be the bulwark of the west, but um, uh, what's keeping Sauron from just going north on the east side of the Anduin and then going around you, right? Um, Lorien. Lorien is the answer to that question. It's Lorien that's keeping him uh, uh, from uh, from flanking Gondor, right, on the north side. But Goadriel doesn't trust the Sylvan Elves, right? The Sylvan Elves aren't going to be able to hold it, that strategic point, right? She'd better help out. Nonetheless, it was not until the disaster in Moria, when by means beyond the foresight of Galadriel, Sauron's power actually crossed the Anduin, and Lorien was in great peril, its king lost, its people fleeing, and likely to leave it deserted to be occupied by orcs, that Celeborn and Galadriel took up their permanent abode in Lorien and its government. But they took no title of king or queen, and were the guardians that in the event brought it unviolated through the War of the Ring. So, of course, they were not the, you know, they didn't found the land of Lorien, right? There were already Sylvan Elves there, had been Sylvan Elves there for, you know, ever so long. Um, okay. Um, yeah, it is interesting that they move east closer to the shadow, like the Noldor being on Morgoth's border, uh, J. Tollers. I agree. Um and you can see, especially in this perception of the strategic importance of, of Lorien, um, there is a kind of an echo of the, uh, the leaguer, right, of Angband. Um, it's not the same thing exactly, but, but it is like an echo of that, isn't it? Um, and that's really interesting. Um, I want to go back to the something in the top that I kind of skimmed over, two things that I sort of skimmed over there. If um, Orifer was leading his back to the land, let's forget this whole invitation of the, let's become retroactive Avari thing, right? If he's doing that whole thing, it, doesn't that seem to reverse what he was saying before? I can't see how both things could be true. That is, I don't see how the, the Sylvan Elves of Mirkwood become Cinderized and start reading, start speaking and writing Cinderin, right, under the influence of their new Cinderin overlords, um, Orifer and Thranduil and, you know, and them who are coming in. On the one hand, we're kind of, it seems like we're being, we're, we were being told that, but now we're being told something quite different. That Orifer and the other Sindar who came with him Far from cinderizing the realm, sylvanized themselves, right? 
they adopted their language and took names of sylvan form and style deliberately. Right? Um, they wished indeed to become sylvan folk. Right? So, how does, um, how does that happen then? Uh, which is true. Which is true. It, and, and, and he seems to be writing these things at the same time, right? Isn't he? Um, I haven't shifted chapters and didn't notice, did I? No, no, still in chapter 17. Um, I don't know how to reconcile those two things, right? Um, that the Wood Elves of Northern Mirkwood, even though technically their king, you know, Legolas and Thranduil are Sindar, um, Legolas himself seems to identify as a Sylvan Elf, right? Um, I think about how he talks about we of the Sylvan folk when he's talking about not being able to... Um, really communicate very clearly with the with the stones of of Eregion. remember that when they're passing through Holland um he um he seems to identify with the sylvan folk he doesn't think of himself as a sindar um even if he is technically right um yeah i don't um would seem to me to be entirely typical of Tolkien's approach. Entirely typical of Tolkien's approach if what we are seeing here is um, Tolkien taking these two sylvan realms, which start off right next to each other, right? There's just the river in between them. You've got the elves of Lorien over on the one bank, right? Uh, uh, and then you've got right on the other side of the river, you've got the uh, living in Amalank, you know, uh, and, you know, where Dol Guldur will someday unfortunately become. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they're right there on the other side of the river and they're, they're practically one people, right? But, you know, they kind of live a little bit apart, but they're in close communication and they're right there. And then you've got uh, the elves, uh, you know, over here on the uh, east bank, moving north and drifting a little bit further away. And then you've got the intervention, right? Then you've got the you get the the Noldor invasion, right, of Lorien, um, not just by Galadriel and Celeborn, but by refugees from Eregion as well, right? And so then you have the active Noldorization of the of the you know the of the Lorien realm, and then you've got the Northern realm, which becomes like more radically Sylvan, right, as time goes on, and. Uh, that this would presumably again, this sounds exactly like the kind of scenario that Tolkien was always coming up with for the sake of his linguistic experimentation, right? Now, what would the Sylvan language look like under those circumstances, right? What if one of them, what if they don't just drift geogra geographically away, but one of them um, uh, is then invaded by, you know, Noldorin, uh, you know, Sindarin speaking, Quenya influenced Noldorin folks? Right. And then at the same time, there's like a Sylvan revival movement in the north right now. What would their two languages look like? Um, again, that sounds exactly like the um, uh, the kind of thing that Tolkien would do just in order to create a fun linguistic scenario for him to play with the change of the languages and the grow, you know, the the way that this, those two Sylvan dialects grew apart from each other. 
right? Um, so I totally buy that. Um, if I have to choose between the two, between like the quasi-colonial cinderization of the Sylvan Elves, you know, where the Sylvan Elves gradually lose their language and culture uh, to the small number of like Cinderin adventurers who come in and kind of take over and, and, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm choosing this Sylvan revival every day of the week, uh, when it comes to that. Um, but, uh, so I like this story in this paragraph. This works for me. Um, but it looks like, doesn't it sound like Tolkien was not really sure which direction things were going there? You know, that he's still kind of, you know, he's still brainstorming. He's still trying to figure this out. I think, right. I think, um, Okay. I think this is my last passage from chapter 17 here. Thranduil had not long returned. Uh, that is, not long returned from the Battle of the Last Alliance, where his father and a huge portion of their army was destroyed, right? So Thranduil's um, rule begins in crisis, right? Thranduil had not long returned when the disaster of the Gladden Fields occurred. When he retreated from the war in the first year of the Third Age, he heard ill news. The orcs of the north regions of the Misty Mountains had also multiplied and spread southwards, and many had crossed the Anduin and were infesting the eaves of Greenwood. The history of the orcs is naturally obscure, and whence these orcs had come is not known. In the final destruction of Thangorodrum and the casting out of Morgoth, their begetter, those in his immediate service had been destroyed, though no doubt some escaped and fled east into hiding. But in the Second Age, Sauron, when he turned back to evil, had gathered to his service all the orcs that were scattered far and wide in the northern world, cowed and masterless, furtive lurkers in dark places. He rekindled the lusts of their black hearts, and to some he showed favor and fed them lavishly, breeding and training them into tribes of strong and cruel warriors." In the Second Age, the presence of the lesser and more furtive orcs in the mountains, between Karn Doom and the Ethnmores, had long been known to the elves and the Dúnedain, but they were not yet much troubled by them. These orcs feared the elves and fled from them, and they did not dare to approach the dwellings of men or to assail them on their journeys unless a lone man or a few rash adventurers strayed near their hiding places. But things had changed. While the greater part of the strength of elves and men had been drawn away south to the war with Mordor, there had, they, they had become more bold, and their scattered tribes had become leagued together and had dug a deep stronghold beneath Mount Gundabad. Slowly, they were creeping southward. Okay. Um, there's so much fun stuff in here, isn't there? Oh, man, where do we start? Okay, let's start with one most obvious thing. The spelling of the word orc. Right? Here's Tolkien spelling the word orc with a K. Um, why is he now spelling the word orc with a K? Um, I think when... Hmm. Here's my impression. And if anybody has a different one, I'm always happy um, uh, to hear you guys share it. Um when he changes the spelling of names, especially not elvish names, like basically not as a part of the evolution of his language, there are basically a, there are, there are a couple different factors, right? One factor is how does it work within sort of you know as it were like the native phonology of the invented language, right? 
But another question, and this is a question that Tolkien was always conscious of, and we can see him referring to it many times uh, in his notes and letters. He was also very conscious of how English readers of his book would pronounce, would, would either would pronounce it or even would see it, right? Um, for instance, I'm thinking of the, the, it's one of his letters, I think, isn't it? Where he refers to the DH consonantal combination as something which looks uncouth to English speakers. We don't have DH, right, in English as a consonantal combination. And so it looks weird. And so he uses it sometimes, like Karathras, right? But he uses it sparingly. Um, and in particular, one of the places where he chose not to use it um, uh, uh, was in Galad Galadriel's name. Like, G Galadriel's name, it was very much on the table to spell Galadriel's name with a D-H, Galadriel, instead. Um, but he chose not to do that. Because it looked, he was afraid it was going to look too weird uh, to English readers. Um, and um, remember how, um, oh, I'm forgetting, somebody remind me, who is the guy, was it Chamberlain? Who is the guy who called his, his names eye-splitting, right? When he was reading, uh, um, wasn't it the guy that he lent Chambers, right? Um the guy that he uh, uh, the the guy that he lent the um, alliterative um, uh, children of Horden to, and the guy made this comment about first of all, I called the names Celtic, the eye splitting Celtic names. That's exactly the thing I'm referring to. I'm trying to. I'm not remembering the full context there. Um, and you know, we get that kind of um, slightly wounded response. By Tolkien, when he says, I I'm sorry if the names split your eyes, right? But they're certainly not Celtic. And uh, uh, and he goes on to basically kind of defend it, right? And say, like, the the names, um, uh, you know, it's like, actually, I think the names are, are, are actually quite good, right? Because they're based on this whole language. You know, like this, this, I did not just, like, make up a whole bunch of weird names. Um, uh, but yes, that, that, that reference to the, that his experience with a... An in, not only an intelligent, but a highly learned reader who was clearly put off by the names, right? Not just by the number of the names or anything, but he called them eye-splitting. Thank you, David. It's in letter 19. Um, could you remind me the person he's writing to? It's bothering me. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's bugging me. So if you can tell me, that'll put me out of my misery. Um, but... Um, Anyway, um, so, um, so yeah, he, Crankshaw, thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Um, I, right. Anyway, um, oh, wait, Crankshaw, that was the, uh, was that the, um, was it, was it the Lay of Lathian or the, boy, see, this is where I'm like, well, time to sit down and reread the letters, I think. I'm forgetting all these things. Um, it was the jest. Okay. Yeah, it was the jest. Not the children of Horan. Great. Okay, yeah, that's what I was just... When I saw the name Crankshaw, I'm like, wait a second, that's not the children of Horan guy. Um, yes. Okay, anyway. Um, so it was Baron and Luthien. Okay. Anyway, the point is, he still... This is also... Um, there's another reason why 
the name Celeborn, right? He knew he was running a risk there. Um, because he knew there was a chance that English readers were going to pronounce that with a soft C. And as indeed, of course, has many times been the case, right? Many people uh, pronouncing, you know, Celeborn and Celebrimbor and all that kind of thing. Um, so he almost, he experimented in some places with spelling it with a K just to make the pronunciation more transparent, basically, to his English audience. At the end of the day, he couldn't do it because it's it doesn't fit. Like, they don't use Ks that way, right, in Cinderin. So he's like, no, 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 no. No, I, I can't do it. But he almost did it, right, for the sake of his English readers, right? It is my conclusion right it is my um it is my belief um that he's changing orc with a c to orc with a k for exactly the same reason basically um that he wants it to make wants to make sure everyone's pronouncing that with a hard c and of course the stakes are a lot less in the word orc than in the names of elves right um or in the name of elvish things like the you know the you know the Celebrant or something like that, right? Um, but um, I I think that that's what's behind. Um, uh, I think that that's what's behind the change from C to K here in the in the in the spelling of of orc. But um, notice the picture. Um, uh, <laughs> no, it's not that they were necessarily... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I agree. It doesn't seem like... It's hard to imagine that a lot of people were just saying orse, right? Uh, the whole time. I, I doubt it. I doubt that that was happening. Um, maybe it was also just that he wanted to make it look harsher. Like, K's... It's, it's a... You know... It's a... ORK looks a little, uh, you know, bolder. Um, yeah, maybe to differentiate it from Orca, right? Yeah, no, these are not killer whales. Don't think about killer whales. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, possibly. I'm not sure. But um, anyway. But I do suspect that it has more to do with how the word looks to his English readers than it does the derivation of the word. I might be, if, if you know to the contrary, and again, I know some of you know Tolkien's languages much better than I do. Um, if you know anything to the contrary, anything in the evolution of his languages at this point in, in his life, um, that would have led ORK to be a more natural spelling of it than ORC, um, let me know. Um, but, um, uh, um, but I suspect that it's primarily both not only for the sound, but also for the look of the word um, for English readers. Anyway, let's back up from this specific question and let's look at the picture of the orcs that we're receiving here. Um, you see what he's doing? We're doing some world building here, picturing what were the orcs like after the fall of Thangorodrim, before the rise of Sauron. 
we know that Morgoth makes the orcs, enslaves the orcs, empowers the orcs. Then he goes away, and for at least a long stretch of time, many of the orcs are not being, you know, there's not a smooth handoff, right, between Morgoth and Sauron, as far as who's controlling the orcs. So we have long stretches of time, presumably, I was about to say many generations of orcs, except, of course, we don't even know how long orcs live, um, since we don't know where they're from or what they are. Um, Stephen, I was thinking of exactly that passage. I absolutely think that that line is lurking in the background here. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, But um, you see what he's imagining? What were the orcs like? Were the orcs not evil? Were they good? Did the orcs left to themselves? Did the orcs set up, um, you know, a constructive society? Uh, you know, is that um, is that what we see here? Right until they're get enslaved, re-enslaved by Sauron, and then you know, there goes hundreds of years of you know, progress in their civilization back down the tubes. I don't, um, I don't think so. Um, um, do you see the picture that he's making? What happens to the orcs when the will of Morgoth is removed from them? And the thing that I find most fascinating about this passage is that it helps us to see what what elements of orcish behavior are like natural to orcs. Will what what elements of orcish behavior will they do left to themselves? <coughs> and what is derived from the power of Sauron or Morgoth. They become more like animals. Yes, they do. They do. They're cowed and masterless, furtive lurkers in dark places. They don't form a constructive society and move forward with their newfound freedom, building a new society, right? Instead, they hide, right? and seem to live a more or less bestial existence. Now, notice what Sauron does to them. He rekindled the lusts of their black hearts. Their hearts are black. Um, they, there does seem to be a corruption which is bred into them. Um, the inclination to act orcishly is not the thing that is being imposed upon them from without, or rather, um, it was it was imposed upon them, perhaps, and I guess at their creation, right? But it's not the thing; that's not the feed that Morgoth is supplying them with, right? What he's supplying with, what he's supplying them with, is courage. Courage. They're cowed. They're furtive lurkers. What does Sauron do? 
rekindles their lust. It makes them braver, more willing to go do bad things. How do they act? Left to themselves? Again, fearfully. They don't dare to approach the dwellings of men. So they don't form raiding parties and go to loot and pillage uh, human settlements. Not because they don't want to. Not because they'd really quite rather not. Um, not because they just want to be free and live in peace. But because they don't dare. Because they lack the courage. And then, when uh, they'll still, like, if some men come to them, they'll fight them, right? But they won't seek them out. Because they're not brave enough. The courage, the ferocity, um, the will to enact their, you know, the desires of their black hearts, that's, it seems, like the, the fire that Morgoth and Sauron um, build up within them, right? Um, While the greater part of the strength of elves and men had been drawn away south to the war with Mordor, they had become a more bold, they had become more bold, and their scattered tribes became leagued together and dug a deep stronghold beneath Mount Gudbad. Slowly they were creeping southward. Sauron's back now, right? And they are gaining. And this, Stephen, is where I was thinking of that line that you were talking about. Um, you remember the line in, what is it, chapter 2, right? Of the Fellowship of the Ring? When it says, uh, when the, narr- the narrator tells us that trolls were being seen again, no longer slow-witted, um, uh, but, uh, oh, what's the word, but something in armed with dreadful weapons. What's the adjective? I'm missing a word from that passage. Um, yeah. Shoot, I can't remember what it was. I hate it when I can remember a line except for, like, one word. Um, cunning, thank you. Yes, cunning. Cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. Thanks, Chad. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I absolutely believe that that sentence is what is in Tolkien's mind when he's writing this, right? Um, he's giving this whole explanation, right? Sauron is back, and Sauron is putting forth his own will, and the creatures of Morgoth are gain, are are now gaining from his power and coming under his uh, coming under his dominion. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carrie, we have no way of knowing how long an orc would live. Um, I, because I, we don't know what orcs are from, right? Um, assuming orcs did in fact derive from elves, you'd think that they would not be mortal, right? They wouldn't just die of old age. But this seems to me to be one of the reasons why Tolkien rejects that idea. Um, why he was so dissatisfied with that. Because I, he didn't, I don't think he wanted orcs living forever. Um, so yeah, I, 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 it's, um, 
I really don't think so. But anyway, um, yeah, that's really interesting, Mr. Dennis. Um, Sauron and Gandalf both kindle hearts. Yeah, thinking about, you know, Gandalf and Sauron setting up across from each other, right? Each attempting to kindle the hearts of, uh, um, to rekindle the hearts uh, of those whose hearts had grown cold, right? Um, that's what we see both of them doing in their own very different ways, right? That's a really cool observation. Uh, I think that's really cool. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going. It is now vain, and indeed unjust, to judge them... This is uh, Gilgalad and Elendil. The question is, Sauron comes back from Numenor, and he's a mess, right? You know, he's just had a major setback. Um, why doesn't Gilgoad pounce right then. Why does he give Sauron time to gather himself before the War of the Last Alliance begins? Because there's a gap in time there, right? Why should that be? So this is Tolkien essentially um, essentially responding to an objection, right? Um, it is now vain and indeed unjust to judge them foolishly, not to do, as in the end they were obliged to do, to have quickly gathered their forces and assailed Sauron. I, yeah, you can say that, right? You can say that they should have swooped in right away and stomped on Sauron while he was still weak. They could not have any certain knowledge of Sauron's intentions or his power, and it was one of the successes of his cunning and deceits that they were unaware of his actual weakness— and his need for a long time in which to gather armies sufficient to assail an alliance of the elves and western men. Simple answer to why did they take so long to attack? They didn't know that he was weak. Maybe they would have taken a risk had they known, but they didn't know. How could they have known? Right? He succeeded in keeping them from knowing that. His occupation of Mordor he no doubt would have kept secret if he could, and it would appear from later events that he had secured the allegiance of men that dwelt in lands adjacent, even those west of Anduin, in those regions where afterwards was Gondor in the arid Nimrice and Calanarthen. Um, of course, we know what he's referring to here, right? Uh, whose allegiance had he secured of the men who were on the west of Anduin, right? We're talking about, um, talking about the Oathbreakers. Right, they're one example, right, that we have of that. So he had a whole bunch of allies. This helped him to sort of um, um, conceal his own activities, right? What's going on over there? Um, but the Numenorians occupying the mouths of Anduin and the shorelands of Lebenin had discovered his devices and revealed them to Gilgalad. But until Second Age 1600, he was still using the disguise of Beneficent Friend, and often journeyed at will in Eriador with few attendants, and so could not risk any rumor that he was gathering armies. Okay, so Sauron's original gathering of armies was 
done in secret from the start, right? And although, so when he says uh, the Numenorians occupying the mouths of Anduin, he's not referring to Gondor. This is pre-Gondor, right? This is during the Second Age. There were Numenorians who were, Umbar is a Numenorian um, uh, 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 port, right? So down there on the southern coast of Gondor and down into Umbar, we've got Numen, there's, there's a Numenorian presence. They figure out um, they discovered his devices. They figured out that he was an enemy and that he was gathering armies and was probably going to be dangerous, right? And they reveal him to Gilgalad. But it took them a long time to get there. And he was still u- using the disguise of a beneficent friend, right? He's still in Anatar mode. And he often used to go and hang out with the elves, right? Journeyed at will in Eriador with few attendants. And so he tried to prevent any rumor that he was gathering armies. Okay, at this time, he perforce neglected the east, where Morgoth's ancient power had been. He wasn't recruiting in Rune. Why not? Well, because he wasn't over there, right? He was in Eriador, right? He was concentrating on Celebrimbor and whatnot, right? Um, and though his emissaries were busy among the multiplying tribes of eastern men, he dared not permit any of them to come within sight of the Numenorians or of Western men. So he was he was doing a little bit of work over there in the East, trying to recruit, but um, but he himself neglected the East. He couldn't really whip things into shape over there. So he did not have vast armies of Easterlings coming over um, because his focus, his attention, um, was all in the West and he had to keep everything totally secret, right? Okay, so anyway, this is all is to, to set up and explain why most of his activities were unknown, right? So they couldn't have known. The orcs of various kind, creatures of Morgoth, were to prove the most numerous and terrible of his soldiers and servants, but great hosts of them had been destroyed in the war against Morgoth and in the destruction of Beleriand. Some remnant had escaped to hidings in the northern parts of the Misty Mountains and the Grey Mountains and were now multiplying again. But further east were more and stronger kinds, descendants of Morgoth's kingship, but long masterless during his occupation of Thangorodrim. They were yet wild and ungovernable, preying upon one another and upon men, whether good or evil. Okay, hang on. Notice here, we're not getting that same picture of orcs that we got in the previous passage, right? We don't see the evil but timid and fearful orcs, right, who don't dare to attack men here at least not among these orcs that he's talking about, these great orcs, um, the stronger kinds of orcs out there. These are merely wild and ungovernable, so Sauron's control over them is merely going to be using his will to dominate and bring them into line, right? Um, But, um... I don't even understand this sentence. Further east, there were more and stronger kinds, descendants of Morgoth's kingship, but long masterless during his occupation of Thangorodrim. He's not saying these were these were these orcs were the descendant of Morgoth's orcs, um, and they've long been masterless since the fall of Thangorodrim, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying these orcs have been free agents ever since Morgoth occupied Thangorodrim. 
which means what? They derived from when Morgoth was ruling in Utumno? Is that the idea here? That while he was in Utumno, he made orcs? Is that the kingship in question here? But then he goes to Thangarodrim later on, and so, you know, he loses time. So even, these were free agents even during Morgoth's rule in Beleriand. Is that what he's saying? Um, that's hard to imagine, because that's before the elves awoke, isn't it? So, where are we now with the origin of these orcs? if the elves haven't even woken up yet. Are we now imagining, at least entertaining the possibility of uh, basically Morgoth having pulled an Aule? Right? He makes the, orth- the orcs in mockery of the elves not after the fact, but before the fact. Right? I know these children of Iluvatar are coming. Um, I got a vague sense of what they're going to be like. So I'm going to get in there first and create my own children. Um you know, these will be the firstborn, right? I'm not saying that I I can't imagine Morgoth doing it, right? Or wanting to do it. Um, But, um, that's uh, a big deal, right? Um, And does not fit very well with the kinds of theological decisions he was making, right? Um, About orcs. The only other the only other here's the only other thing I can think of of what long masterless during his occupation of Thangarodrum could mean. Um, I have one other theory. My one other theory is I'm thinking in conjunction with what he says about the East. Remember, he just said that out east, um, back I think it's back at the previous slide, right? Um, right. Um, uh, at this time, he perforce neglected the east where Morgoth's ancient power had been. Okay, so Morgoth... And there, I believe, the reference is to the Garden of Eden, <laughs> right? To the, um, uh, to the corruption of men, right? Um, the story of Adonel and all that kind of thing, right? So you've got uh, the humans awake um, in Hildorian and the... Um, uh, and Morgoth finds them, right? So Morgoth goes over there, and he corrupts the humans, and he sets up this culture of Morgoth worshiping humans, right? Of which there are some who are like not comfortable with that, and they migrate and eventually become the Adine, right? Over many generations, but uh, or how many generations of, is of course one of the problems we saw him trying to solve earlier on. But any early on in the nature of Middle Earth, anyway. Okay. If that's what he's referring to as Morgoth's ancient power, um, Morgoth had been ruling as god-king of the East among humanity, right? Young, new, young humanity out there in the East. So that, out in the East there, where, you know, you have the old cult of Morgoth, which could be revived, obviously fertile recruiting ground for Sauron when he's trying to set up for himself in Mordor, right? But again, we have here in this slide the explanation for how he couldn't do that because he was really focused on the elves westward. Um, but 
Um, but is it possible then that when he talks about the orcs being... Did he bring orcs with him from the north where he was based, right? Out to where he corrupts the elves, out to the, you know, where he sets up the cult of Morgoth out there among the humans. But then he left them there and returned to Thangarodrum, as we know he does, right? Um, So when he returns back to Thangarodrum to play out the wars in Beleriand, he's left some orcs over there. And those are the orcs we're talking about, right? So he brings these particularly um, large and strong subspecies of orcs with him when he heads out to the east, right? Um, and and then he leaves them there and comes back. That's my other that's my other theory. Now it is possible, Jay Towers, that there could be post awakening of the elves and pre chaining of Morgoth, but. It, that's a tight window. It's a tight window. Um, it's possible. It's possible. Um, it's not consistent. Well, I mean, it's not consistent with some things, of course. It's not consistent with when we're told about the orcs exactly, but uh, maybe. I mean, it's it's possible. But again, remember Tolkien going back and forth about how you know he kept wanting to prolong that time. So maybe this comes from when he was imagining quite a long time, millennia, right, between the Awakening and the visit from Orome, right? So in that case, Morgoth would have had more time to make orcs up there. Um, It's possible, right? Or again, here's another theory about my uh, out in the East with the men theory. What if this were to be read in conjunction with his theories that the orcs are derived not from elves, but from humans, right? What if these orcs of the East are orcs, the original orcs, essentially, right? The descendants of the original orcs that Morgoth made from human stock, which he would have done from the humans he was, you know, working with out there. And then he brings some of them back with him to Thangarodrim, and then, you know, there we are. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, it's all uh, because the nature and history of the orcs uh, is so uncertain, right? It's really kind of hard to figure this out. But those seem to me the main possibilities there. But it's hard to figure it all out. It's hard to rectify all of it. Um uh, exactly, Jay Towers. The orc problem keeps getting bigger. I know it, right? Um, okay, well, let's keep going here. But not until Mordor and the Barad-dûr were ready could he allow them, their Sauron, of course, could he allow them to come out of hiding, while the eastern orcs, who had not experienced the power and terror of the Eldar, had not... So these are orcs who are, they're completely naive. They have never encountered elves before. Whoa. Um, or the Valar, or the Valor of the Edain were not subservient to Sauron. While he was obliged for the cousining of Western men and elves to wear as fair a form and countenance as he could, they despised him and laughed at him. Right? Anatar is a laughingstock among the Eastern orcs. 
Thus it was that though, as soon as his disguise was pierced and he was recognized as an enemy, he exerted all his time and strength to gathering and training armies, it took some ninety years before he felt ready to open war. And he misjudged this. Now, this is the invasion of Eriador we're talking about, not the Battle of the Last Alliance anymore. And he misjudged this, as we see in his final defeat, when the great host of Minastir from Numenor landed in Middle-earth. His gathering of armies had not been... His gathering of armies had not been unopposed, and his success had been much less than his hope. But this is a matter spoken of in Notes on the Five Wizards. He had powerful enemies behind his back, the East, and in the southern lands to which he had not yet given sufficient thought. How about that for a tantalizing couple sentences, right? Um, the Five Wizards Notes, that's the stuff in the peoples of Middle-earth. That's the, the place where we hear about the, the names of the Blue Wizards, which suggest that they actually did not fail and set up uh, uh, wizard cults, but, uh, uh, you know, magic cults, but in fact were working hard and successfully against, um, against Sauron, right? He was thwarted. His defeat was enabled by the work of the five wizards. And notice here also, he does have the blue wizards operating during the Second Age, right? Um, it was the work of the Blue Wizards during the Second Age in the East and in the Southern Lands um, that were making things hard for him, right? Um, and were preventing him from building as large armies as he might have built without them, right? Um, yeah. Amazing. Okay. Um, here, I, I I put this slide up just because I need your help, because um, I, I don't I don't understand this. This is the dwarf voices. Is it? It is false to make dwarves uncreative or poor linguists. They had a great interest in languages, which is more or less dormant until they began to associate with other peoples. But they could not conceal their voices. Phonetically, they were acute and could pronounce learned languages well but their voices were very deep in tone with laryngeal coloration, and they among themselves spoke in a laryngeal whisper. What's a laryngeal whisper? I don't think I'm able to imagine a laryngeal whisper. Um, uh, it sounds like some kind of resonant whisper from deep in the throat. But I, I mean, I know what the words mean individually, right? But I cannot, like, hear in my imagination um, what a laryngeal whisper would sound like. Um, nor do I, therefore, understand precisely what laryngeal coloration is. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know what the larynx is, <laughs> right? Uh, but, um, but I don't, that I'm not, I don't understand those, those ideas. Um, so if anybody could explain to me what he's on about here, right? I, uh, I am, I am not enough of a linguist to follow, uh, Tolkien here. Um, so anybody who can explain this to me, I would be grateful to try to under, to, so, cause so I could try to picture, right. To try to hear, you know, uh, in my mind's ear, 
um, the voices of the dwarves. Of course, I'm I'm reminded of um, uh, I'm reminded of two. There there are two other references, right? Um, that immediately popped into my head when I was reading this passage. One of which I referred to in my subtitle. There, um, can't you hear their voices? Right, um, Sam can tell elves from their speech, not from their language, right, but just from their tone of voice. There's something in the voice of elves that not only is identifiable to Sam, but makes elves so obvious he can't believe that anybody can't tell an elf right away just from hearing them talk, right? Um, uh, okay. Um, and so that's one thing. There's something, what is it exactly that Sam is hearing in elf voices that make everything so, that make it, that, that make that so obvious to him? I don't know exactly, right? But that's one passage that I thought of. The other one is Treebeard to the Hobbits, right? Um, uh, I like them, nice little voices, right? It was his hearing the voices of the Hobbits that convinced, that showed him they weren't little orcs, right? Um, but um, dwarf voices apparently are fundamentally different. I don't know that Treebeard would have liked dwarf voices, right, if he heard them. Um, but um, yeah, okay. Ah, Alyssa, thank you. Alyssa says, okay, it's um, the whole laryngeal coloration thing is part of Proto-Indo-European theory. Original phonemes were made further back than sounds in descendant languages, so further back in your throat. Um, So she suggests looking up laryngeal theory in Wikipedia. Okay, okay. Um, I mean, I feel like the the phoneme that I make... Um, that I've trained myself to make, thanks to Tolkien, right, that I've trained myself to make, which is closest to my larynx, is um, the that first syllable in the Orcish word for fire, right, the G-H, which he says is like the ch, back of the throat ch consonant, you know, that the one that they do in, like, Hebrew and Welsh and things, but when, when we don't do uh, in, in, in English. Um, but it's voiced, right, so that ch consonant. Uh, hosh, right? Hosh. Um, I, uh, it took me actually a lot of practice. Uh, to, I remember reading Tolkien's description of that. Um, and I was, and I couldn't do it. Like I literally could not generate that sound in my throat, um, without practice. And I'm like, you know, you got to push from the diaphragm right, to make that sound. Um, and, um, Anyway, so Alyssa, that's the closest thing. That's the closest any phoneme gets to my larynx. Uh, so yes, yeah, certainly most of our phonemes are in you know the front of our mouths and stuff. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, I will look it up. Laryn- laryngeal theory. I will. I will. Uh, I will. I will look that up and see what I find. Thank you for that. Okay, um, a couple quick notes. Uh, two quick passages from the uh, uh, some of the extra material from the Hunt for the Ring. Um, this one was really interesting in that he's speaking explicitly about something that in Exploring the Lord of the Rings we've talked about a good bit with some uncertainty um, because it's a little uncertain in the published text exactly how well and in what circumstances um, uh, 
uh, can um, the ringwraiths detect the presence of the one ring, right? So here we go. Saturday, September 24th, 3018. Gandalf speeds across Enidwife. E, that is ringwraith. E, we've got ringwraiths E and F, right? Uh, e is Kamul, right? Um, uh, and F, we don't know who he is, but uh, so it's ringwraiths E and F. This is in the list that Tolkien made, trying to figure out like where each ringwraith was at any given point, right? As he's kind of mapping everything out. Um, so this is E and F are the two who invade the Shire. E picks up the stock road and overtakes Frodo at approaches to Woody End, probably by accident. He becomes uneasily aware of the ring, but is hesitant and uncertain because of the bright sun. He turns into the woods and waits for night. After dark, becoming acutely aware of the ring, he goes in pursuit, but is daunted by the sudden appearance of the elves and the song of Elbereth. While Frodo is surrounded by the elves, he cannot perceive the ring clearly. Okay, so, on the one hand, under some circumstances, the ringwraith, uh, this is Kamul here, right? Kamul is acutely aware of the presence of the ring. So he's coming straight for Frodo after dark, right? And this is, of course, when Gildor comes across them and saves them, right? Um, he's acutely aware of it in the dark, right? But when the sun is shining, so the sun is one effect, right? In the bright sun, he can't sense it as much. He's uneasily aware of the ring, but he just, the sun gives him the heebie-jeebies, right? So he can't go after it, and he apparently can't get it, can't pick it up that clearly, right? The signal's fuzzy for the ring raves in the bright sunlight, right? And then the other thing, this was really cool, about how when Frodo is surrounded by the elves... The ringwraith can't detect, the, de- perceive the ring. It's one thing, you know, merely a confirmation of what seems pretty clear in the text that um, he's daunted by the sudden appearance of the elves in the Song of Elbereth, right? Um, sure, clearly he withdraws when the elves come, singing their Song of Elbereth, so that both of those two things, the elves and Elbereth, would be involved in the ringwraith's withdrawal. Right when uh, 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 when when they come in, seems clear, but the fact that the mere surrounding of Frodo by elves also dampens the ring signal, right? Um, really interesting. <laughs> exactly, it's like a ring Faraday cage, right? Uh, elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it makes you wonder, right? Why did they not? send them with, like, 10 or 15 elves just to surround them, right? Um, if it's like a... If uh, being surrounded by elves provides you a kind of spiritual invisibility, right? I, I don't know. Um, but, um... That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, okay. Next, another... Um, another passage. In this one, we learn more about the running water thing. We've talked about this on a couple different occasions at various points when we've this has come up with the ring wraiths. Um, Tolkien was did seem to want to kind of uh, incorporate some of the traditional sort of folklore and fairy tale ideas about running water, right? And how the crossing of running water is something that evil spirits often have a hard time doing or is impossible 
uh, for evil spirits, for the dead, or something like that. Um, ghosts, that kind of thing. Um, you remember, you may remember Christopher's comment, I think this was back in, um, when we were talking about the history of the Lord of the Rings, um, how, how Tolkien had originally wanted the ringwraiths to only be able to cross rivers at, like, certain, you know, moments or in certain ways and stuff, but he couldn't make it work because there's just too many rivers in Middle-earth, right? How are they ever going to even get to the Shire if they can't cross rivers? Um, but here we can see him kind of returning to, the, to that idea, and I loved this. E, that is Ringwraith E, is now well aware that the ring has crossed the river, but the river is a barrier to his sense of movement, so he can't tell what's happening with the ring over there. Also, E and F, and all the Nazgul, hate water, and they will not touch the Baranduin. Its waters were to them elvish, for it rose in Nanuiao, which the elves still controlled. Frodo spends night at Crick Hollow. Gandalf is drawing near to Tharbed, so you see him, you know, staging it out day by day, right there. The Brandywine. The Brandywine. It's not just water. It's elvish water because it comes from the Lake Ninuiel, even Lake Evendim, right? And Lake Evendim is still controlled in some sense by the elves, right? I don't know exactly the sense in which um, the sense in which the elves control Lake Evendim, right? I don't know. Um, but apparently they do. And the ringwraiths can feel the elvishness. There's some kind of elvish blessing, right? The brandywine smells like elves to the, to the Nazgul, clearly, right? Um, and this is really... This is really interesting because you see what it... You see what this looks like Tolkien is kind of folding in here, right? He seems to be kind of folding in an elvish blessing of the Shire, doesn't he? Right? Um, just as we will learn later, and I don't think even Tolkien knows yet, necessarily. No, by the time he's doing this, he probably does. Um, we will learn later that the rangers, right, the Dunedain, have been protecting the Shire, have been sheltering the Shire for many years. Apparently, I think the elves have been doing that too, it seems, by, through their, this blessing on the Brandywine. Now, I don't know that they're necessarily doing it on purpose to protect the Shire, right? I don't know that they have a, like a, a set purpose to protect the Shire, like the Dunedain do, right? The Dunedain are protecting the Shire on purpose. Um, uh, I don't know that the elves are protecting the Shire on purpose through the blessing of Lake Evendim and the Brandywine River. Um, but that, I think, is uh, is really interesting. And yeah, the Shire folk, Cecilia, don't know that they have this protection, right? Are completely unaware of this. Think about how they think of the Brandywine and, and how, um, uh, you know, how Mary thinks of the Brandywine, right? Um, and, uh, and there they go. Um, it's probably an unintended consequence. You know, another thing that it makes me think of, um, this concept. 
puts Gildor's words to Frodo in a new light, don't they? Um, it's not your Shire, right? Um, there are others apart from you who are invested in this land, right? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. Um, and sure, Catriona, I can certainly imagine the elves being concerned with maintaining the corridor to the Grey Havens um, and thus retaining control over Nanuiel for that reason. Um, yeah, I don't. I doubt that they're necessarily attempting to shelter the Shire. But it's still interesting. It's still interesting. Um, yes, Captain Button, the... Um, uh, the link to vampires is non-coincidental. That is, I'm not saying that he's saying that the wraiths are vampires, right? But um, Bram Stoker in Dracula <coughs> and Tolkien here are both of them um, playing off of the same kinds of uh, folklore about running water, essentially. The Nazgul and their difficulty, their uneasiness in crossing... like their uneasiness in crossing rivers and their discomfiture in the, uh, uh, you know, in uh, the Bruinen, um, it's, it are closely related to Dracula only being able to cross the Thames at the change of the tide, for instance. Um, yeah, so those are, those are, they're not directly related. He's not alluding to Dracula. He's not connecting the ringwraiths to vampires specifically um you know post post bram stoker vampires um don't forget that post bram stoker vampires are still a relatively new thing in tolkien's world um but uh, anyway um still um he both of them it's it's the same kind of cultural source that lies behind them all right i'm going to stop there i'm running over time but we have done it. We've come up to, but not including, uh, the last chapter in the book. It's a long chapter uh, and a fun and exciting one. Uh, So I'm looking forward to discussing the uh, rivers and beacon hills of Gondor with you next time. Uh, And then then we'll see. We'll see if we can uh, finish that up. One more chapter. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.